This morning, we're going to have more of a storytelling than really a sermon. And you need to understand that we're going to start a series on the book of Nehemiah. I'll be in it the next two Sundays. Barry Arnold, when he's with us three Sundays from now, will be looking at chapter 2. Uh, we will come back to Nehemiah periodically during the next several weeks. Uh, Nehemiah is a book that we don't often preach from. It's my favorite book in the Bible because I'm convinced that Nehemiah was an engineer. And we'll find out why that is so. Uh, let me make certain I get this turned on. And Bob will get us queued up here in a moment. Nehemiah is one of the last books of the Old Testament written. And it concludes a period of history for the Jewish people that we sort of have an, an interval between the end of Nehemiah and we have 400 what we call silent years before Jesus Christ steps into the scene uh, between the end of the book of Nehemiah. So it's kind of tells us where the Jewish people are. But it leaves us with a question. How in the world did Nehemiah, which is where the book starts, get to Susa? And Susa is the capital of the Persian Empire. And we're going to take a journey that takes us there in a few minutes to answer that question. Just to give you some idea where it is, it's right about there. And that's where the book of Nehemiah starts. Now to give us some idea of what we're talking about and where we're talking about, this is the modern political divisions in the Middle East. And you'll notice some of the normal things here. Jerusalem and Judea is right in this area, in this area. Of course, we've got um, Syria and uh, I always want to say it wrong. Um, but we have Egypt down here. We have Iraq. We have Iran, Turkey. Over here, Afghanistan and Pakistan. These are countries that are in the news regularly even today and over the last 10 or 15 years, 20 years, we've had a good deal of our people in various portions of those lands. Uh, it's an area of history that goes on. To give you a sense of geography, uh, looking at it from a satellite map, if you were to take from the California border with Mexico all the way to the Canadian border, the states of California, Oregon, and Washington, rotate them 90 degrees and lay them into this area, this area right here in the red would be what we would talk about. Pretty much the entire story of the Bible takes place in this area. It's also known to historians as the Fertile Crescent. When you look at it from this satellite Google picture right here, um, doesn't look very fertile. Doesn't look very green. And I would caution any of you who are having trouble seeing the screen, don't be bashful. Feel free to move over. And in the back, back there on the desk where Bob is, there's a handful of copies of these slides if you're having trouble seeing them. You can go grab one. Won't bother me a bit to have you get up and go get one. I was going to have one for each one of you this morning. The copier at the office ran out of toner sometime when I told it to print last night and this morning, and we only ended up with a few copies. I will have more copies next week. Um, but that's the area we're talking about, is basically this area. And unless you were fortunate enough to have a horse, which were few and far between, you basically walk that territory. So when you hear the biblical stories, Largely, it's people walking back and forth through this territory. Um, the story of the people of Israel starts with Abraham, who came from Ur of the Chaldees, which is right about in this area right here, 
moved up to this area and then eventually moved down to the land of Palestine in this area in here. Uh, of course, then we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob and his family ended up moving down to Egypt and lived in this area in his part of Egypt. And then, of course, the Exodus took them back up and around and back in the land of Palestine in here. Uh, that's quite a story and quite a history. Um, let me flip a couple of pages here so I keep up with myself. There's a lot of things that go on during that period of time. One of the important things that happened during that period of time in that Exodus period, the time of Moses, was at Mount Sinai, right down in here, the law was given. And not only was the law given, but a great deal of information was given with the law about things that the Jews were supposed to do. One of those things that they were supposed to do once they went in and took over the land and took possession of the land was to, every seventh year, let the land lie fallow. Um, let's look here. Move on here. I, don't, I didn't put in a map of what the uh, land of Palestine looked like when the Jews got done taking it over, but it included mostly this area that I'm putting in here when they came off of the Exodus. This map happens to deal with the kingdoms of this pinkish area was at the end of Saul's reign, this brown area is at the end of David's reign, and this area up here was added during Solomon's reign. That was the maximum extent to the kingdom of Israel. Well, given to them in the instructions from Solomon, and you can find this in Exodus 23, verse 10, it says, You shall sow the land for six years, and you shall gather in its yield. But on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Also six days you are to labor and work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from work so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. The seventh year was important. Whether it was from the time that they were the land was distributed after they did the conquering or from the time of the start of the kingdom of Saul, there was a period of 400 and roughly 90 years. In the northern kingdom, that would be the area basically from just north of Jerusalem all the way up through here. That portion of it was measured from the dividing of the land. And 490 years later, these folks were conquered by Assyria, which we will talk about in a moment. The measuring down in here was measured from the establishment of the kingdom. Again, that was another 490-year period. Now, why are these periods that important? Well, they become important when we start looking at the next part of our, our story. Because not only did we have the the seventh year that was the sabbatical year for the land, we also had, after seven sevens, we had the year of Jubilee, which certain things were to happen. If you were a Hebrew and you became destitute, you could sell yourself to another Hebrew, and at the seventh year, you would be freed as a slave and allowed to go back to be where you were going to be. Now, you could volunteer to be a slave again for another seven years if you wanted to. But slavery, in that sense, was voluntary. Every seventh year, the Hebrew slaves were let go loose. Turns out that the seven sevens in the, in the uh, year of Jubilee, any land that you had sold would revert back to you. So the price of land, when you sold it from a Hebrew to a Hebrew, 
was the price of how many crops you could raise on it before the year of Jubilee. So if you sold it in early in the thing, you'd get a whole lot of crops off of it. But if you waited until a couple of years before the year of Jubilee, you'd only get a couple of crops, so the value of the land would go down. And then after the 50th year, price of the land would go back up again, and then it would diminish as we went forward, as we went through it. This is all part of what was given to the people at Mount Sinai and the subsequent instructions from Moses. Um, it's important to understand why God did this. Sevens are important in God's economy. The seventh day was when God rested from creating the universe and creating the world that we know today. He used it to remind people that it was a time to worship and take care of Him. And by the way, we're worshiping not on the seventh day, but the first day. Why do we do that? We do it in recognition of Christ's resurrection as opposed to worshiping on the seventh day, which was in anticipation of Christ. Now, this is where we were when Solomon took over things. Timeline-wise, that would be approximately 1200 B.C. All the dates that we're talking about are B.C. So, you got to do your math backwards. As we move forward in time, the year number gets smaller. As we go back in time, the year number gets bigger. I have to always adjust my brain for that because I'm used to working the other way most of the time. Uh, several important things happen in here. Um, we have, of course, Saul, which I don't have on the map. The important thing we want to look at here is Solomon. Uh, 791, he becomes king. That's minus 791. Uh, temple construction starts 966. It took 20 years to complete the temple. That's an important date in Jewish mind, that uh, 946 B.C., that's when the temple was dedicated. That's an important date. It will become an important date for us as well as we move forward. Uh, after Solomon dies, the kingdom is divided. And roughly 720 B.C., the nation of Assyria comes in and conquers the northern kingdom. Now, what is the Assyrian nation? Uh, here's one look at it. It was a nation that basically developed in the Fertile Crescent area. The Bible tells us that they were a very aggressive, warlike people. And this particular one is, map is representative of in this period right in here, Isaiah's time. Now you'll notice that it covers a lot of that area that we said was basically California, Washington, and Oregon in size. They completely wiped out and deported the people from northern ten tribes off into here. They basically subjugated but didn't conquer until 701 the area around Jerusalem. And you want to remember this name, Sennacherib. That's just a fun name to remember. He was the king of the Assyrians at the time that they took control of Judea. Now, the Assyrian Empire uh, was one that developed, uh, here we go, by many campaigns. You can see color after color after color. This person went to all the work of showing how it developed. The Assyrian Empire eventually came down and conquered Egypt and actually went up the Nile. So it was a tremendous kingdom. You can imagine how difficult it was to manage and control it. Now, at this point, the Jewish people, the Jewish temple, 
and this group, and this shows the actual area immediately around Jerusalem as being a free area. They were vassals. You know what it means to be a vassal? A vassal is sort of like when you were in grade school and the bully wanted your lunch. He'd let you do anything you wanted as long as every day you gave him your lunch because for some reason your mom packed a good lunch. Well, that's what being a vassal was. The bully got the cream of the crop. He got a bunch of money, got a bunch of produce from the land. Everybody was coming along. The Assyrians were very effective in what they did. And they conquered most of what of the area that was eventually going to become Babylon. You'll notice that Babylon is here on the Euphrates River. Um, that's going to become important for us to make note of as we go forward. Because there's a whole lot of story going with that. You read about the Assyrians largely in Kings, latter part of the book of First and Second Kings and Chronicles, and you hear about the northern tribes being conquered. And when they were conquered, you need to understand this, the conquerors of the ancient lands in here said, you know, if we leave these people in the land, they're going to do what? Every so many years, they're going to rebel. We're going to have to come in and put our thumb on them again. So they said, no, we're going to solve that problem. They grabbed the people that had any gumption, all of the administrators, all the government officials, all of those who were tradesmen, professional kind of people, and they would take them and they would scatter them throughout their empire. Idea is, is within two or three generations, you wouldn't be able to find these people anymore. They would have intermarried, they would have lost their identity, now their children and grandchildren belong to the kingdom. That's what's supposed to happen in the United States as we have people come into our country. We're supposed to have a melting pot. We're to lose our originating land identity, and pretty soon our only thing we identify with is with our land in itself. Spending as much time as Janet and I did in Butte, Montana, we could really see that. It was a town where every ethnic group that came from Europe brought its own priest in their own language and established a Catholic church. Or the group that came in from Serbia established an Orthodox church. Uh, today you go to Butte, Montana, and it's pretty hard to find anybody that says, I'm a pure-blooded Serbian, or I'm a pure-blooded this, or a pure-blooded that, because they've intermarried. And now they're a part of what they affectionately call Butte America. They have a very strong local identity. But that's exactly what these folks were doing. And why we say today that the ten northern tribes are largely lost. They lost their identity. It does say, though, in Ezekiel and uh, someplace else, that at the time of the division of the kingdom, the northern tribes, those who wanted to continue to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem, individually moved down to Judea. So interspersed into the people that were left in Judea were individual families that came from the northern ten tribes. And it in the future, we will find a reestablishment where we have 12 tribes again for Israel, actually 13, a baker's dozen, because the Levites aren't counted, although they are one of the tribes. So we have the Assyrians come in, and the Assyrians controlled things until Nebuchadnezzar which was a king of Babylon, started pushing out and conquering portions of the Assyrian Empire. 
they had a general, a very successful general by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. That's a name that most of us know. And he started doing campaigns, and his campaign in the year 605, he'd gone north and he'd gone west, but in 605 he went south and he conquered what was left of Judah. Now he didn't destroy much in that particular conquering, because he was traveling fast because he was going down to put pressure on Egypt. And when he went back to the land, he skimmed off the cream of the crop. He skimmed off the college students and some administrators. And guess who he gathered up in that process? A fellow by the name of Daniel and four of his associates. Now we know there were much, many more than that. But Daniel becomes an important character because now the spiritual leadership of the Jewish people largely moves from Jerusalem to Babylon for a period of time and eventually to Susa. And we will take a look at that and see what that means, what that looks like. God is already preparing to take care of his people. The second thing, when Nebuchadnezzar brought this group back, they were allowed to maintain their family identity. They were allowed to live in a quarter in the city of Babylon that was a Jewish quarter or a Jewish neighborhood. Um, they were not as interested in dispersing the people widely within their population. They were interested in getting control. One of the interesting things they wanted to do was they thought their power was enhanced when they could take the best of what you seem to be doing right and incorporate it into their kingdom. Thus, taking the, the intelligentsia, the bright young folks like Daniel, and into, the, into the kingdom. Um, Nebuchadnezzar actually deported people from Israel three different times. First time in 605, he takes the then king, Jehoiachin, with him, and he sets up a vassal king that says, okay, you promised to rule as a governor in my name. And this guy wasn't as bright as he thought he was. You'll read in Kings where he made an agreement with Egypt and decided to rebel. And Nebuchadnezzar said, no, 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 you should not have done that. So then he comes in and he takes all the tradespeople and what's left of the government and he hauls those off to Babylon, thus making the Jewish neighborhood much larger. That works pretty well. And finally, the Jews decide to rebel again, and Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, that's enough. At this point, Jerusalem is a walled city. And it takes Nebuchadnezzar, well, he goes off and fights with Egypt and comes back. It takes him about 18 to 24 months to uh, basically break down the walls of Jerusalem and to break in. By then, the Jews were literally starving to death. And if you read what's in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, uh, ladies, if you had a child, you'd boil them for supper. That's how desperate they were for food. They were literally skin and bones, starving to death when Nebuchadnezzar broke the wall down. This time, he said, that's enough. We're clearing you all out. He breaks down the walls. He destroys the temple. And I think Rob shared with us uh, when he came back from his trip to, the, to Israel a few years ago, most of the rock in that area is limestone. And it's a fairly porous version of limestone. Turns out if you pour a bunch of water on the rock, the rock will absorb the water. You build a fire over the rock, build it hot enough, what happens to the water in the rock? It turns to steam. What happens when it turns to steam? It makes big rocks into little rocks. 
It makes little rocks into pebbles, makes pebbles into sand. And that's literally what Nebuchadnezzar did to the city of Jerusalem. Is poured water over everything, set big fires on it, burned it to the ground. That had two negative effects. Number one, Jerusalem used to have a lot of trees and shrubbery around it. He cleared it. You talk about a clear cut here, he clear cut things. Secondly, all the stones to rebuild things were gone. Because usually what happened in that land when you knocked the stones down the normal way, which is hit it with battering rams, rip it apart by putting ropes around it and jerking it down, you could come in afterwards and recover the stones and rebuild things. Now there was some rubble left, but it wasn't very good material to work with. And we'll hear that mentioned eventually in Nehemiah. So we finally, in 586, we have the final conquering of Jerusalem, destruction of the walls, everything is wiped out. Now there's two times that you start counting in here, and over on this margin, you'll notice that I have something that says 70 years, and another one that starts here. There's two periods of 70 years counted. And why do we come up with 70 years? Remember, we mentioned 490 years from the time the kingdom from Samuel set up the kingdom with Saul to the time that 605 B.C. occurred. The people had not honored the Sabbath year. The land has not had its fallow period. We learn in the book of Jeremiah and a couple of other places that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years as a punishment for its sins, and the period of the captivity would be 70 years because of the failure to honor the Sabbath year, the seventh year. Now, this measuring of 70 years comes from the first deportation. This measuring of 70 years comes from the destruction of the temple. Both of those come out to be true. Now, let's look at the Babylonian kingdom. The Babylonian kingdom basically has the southern portion of this fertile crescent a little bit to the northern side of it that's undone. It takes all of what was largely Assyria, most of what was Assyria, remember that map. By the way, there's Ur er of Chaldea. Remember this word Chaldea or Chaldeans? It shows up once or twice more. That's the name for the people in this area down in here is Chaldeans, particularly along the people along the Euphrates River. And of course, we have Jerusalem over here. This town of Rabbah shows up in Scripture when you're reading in the latter part of Kings, and you're reading particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah's prophecy. It shows up in those prophecies regularly. Damascus shows up regularly. So this is what we're talking about in here. Now, the thing to note is while the Babylonian kingdom is largely controlling this space in here and it lasts a fairly long period of time, there's another kingdom developing up here called the Median Kingdom. These people are starting to develop and communicate. And we have Western Turkey developing over here. And we have the beginnings of Greece over in this area. All of these, things, all these communities play a role as we come forward into it. Um, let me keep track of where I am here. So there's the Babylonian kingdom. It fairly quickly took over, a period of about 20 years, took over all of Assyria and was ruled from Babylon and a series of kings. Now, the kingdom of Babylon didn't last too particularly long. It basically lasted the life of Daniel. 
We don't know exactly how old Daniel was when he was deported. We have every reason to believe that he was probably what we'd think of today as a teenager. And Daniel lived the entire period from Nebuchadnezzar, probably from before Nebuchadnezzar, because if he was a teenager, he'd be probably, sake of argument, 15 years old when he was deported. And so we start reading in the book of Daniel. The first thing we read in the book of Daniel is Daniel says, uh, we don't want to eat your stuff. We want to eat a special diet. Turns out it was more healthy than the diet that everybody else was eating. Daniel was given a special gift by God because Daniel determined to worship God, to obey Him, be faithful to Him. He was given the ability to understand dreams and visions, both his own and those of the king. And we, we are familiar with the stories in the book of Daniel. One of the stories in the book of Daniel is his three friends, as you know, refused to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's statue. He threw them in a furnace. And what happened to them? They walked out and they didn't even smell of smoke. Uh, Daniel was very quickly elevated to a position of being in the closest advisor to the king. And Nebuchadnezzar communicated with him very quickly. One of the things that God did for the people of Israel, and this is important to think about, is by putting Daniel next to Nebuchadnezzar and proving to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel's God was the God of the universe. Nebuchadnezzar eventually became a believer in God and thus treated the Jews differently than he treated most everybody else. He allowed them to keep their identity. He allowed them to keep their culture. He allowed them to prosper in his land. And one of the messages from Jeremiah to the people that are in Babylon, it says, Jeremiah says, guys, 70 years have been declared. Build houses, marry, raise your children, prosper in the land, do well, make things go well for the Babylonian people, because you're going to be there for a while. But know this, at the end of the 70 years, I will gather you and bring you back. So one of the important things to realize is what happens when that starts to occur. But these are important dates to set that up. Now, look a little further along in this timeline. You see that there's a group of Babylonian kings that come along through here. What's going on? Middle of the period of time that Daniel is there, Daniel gets called into the banquet hall of Belshazzar. Belteshazzar was having a banquet, and uh, he wasn't the brightest boy. He not only was having a big party, he decided that he should drink out of the vessels that came from the temple in Jerusalem, because when Nebuchadnezzar, before he destroyed the temple, he picked up all of the vessels that were used in the worship, in the, in the temple, and carted them off to the land of Babylon. It's sort of like what happened when the English started looking at the uh, pyramids in Egypt. What happened to everything they discovered in the pyramids in Egypt? It got hauled to England. Actually, most of it got hauled to Edinburgh in Scotland. And later on, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, guess where they went? They went to Edinburgh. Well, that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. Took those things. Belshazzar decided he was going to drink out of those holy vessels. Uh, shortly after he had his first swig, a finger appears and writes on the wall of the banquet hall. It 
and he couldn't understand the writing, nor did he understand the message. They called Daniel, he came, Daniel came and said, okay, this is what it means, Belshazzar, you've been judged, you've been found wanting, and you will be killed. And he was that night by Darius, the general of the Persian armies, actually the Median army, which occurs right here. Now, this is an interesting story. The city of Babylon was built literally on both sides of the Euphrates River. When you do that, and you have walls around the city, you have to basically produce a bridge over the river and put your wall on the bridge. And the water has to flow through the pilings, the piers, and flow through the city. Darius had gone upstream a bit, found a, what you call, a flood channel that would go around Babylon, put in a coffer dam and diverted the river into the flood channel. River dried up the night of the banquet. Darius marched his troops in on the riverbed. By 10 o'clock or 11 the next day, Babylon was under full control of the Persians. And it says, and check this out in the book of Daniel. Daniel very carefully says, Darius was made king of the Chaldeans. That's an important thing to say. Because literally the way the Babylonian Empire was conquered was they cut off the head and replaced it with Darius the Mede. And they literally took over the rest of the empire and controlled it without changing out most of the other people. It was an amazing way to take over an empire. Most of the time you went in and took a few acres of land this year and you came back and you conquered a few acres of land the next year and the next year you conquered a few more acres and you kept doing that. But in this case, they took it over between three o'clock in the morning and noon the next day. Pretty effective conquering. Amazing conquering. Uh, almost immediately after that, Darius said, okay, who's who in the kingdom? And it comes to light that he wanted to appoint leaders. He appointed Daniel to be one of the leaders within weeks. It was clear that Daniel was head and shoulders above the others. And the other folks were what? Jealous. They didn't like it. They didn't like Daniel being in close to the Babylonian kings, and they certainly didn't like him being close to Nebuchadnezzar. We have a new kingdom, everybody wants his power. They convinced Nebuchadnezzar that he should say, anybody who wants to make a request of God should make that request of me. And they put it, and they put it out there, and they were going to do this for one month to teach the people to worship Darius to accept him as the king. The penalty for not doing that was apparently they had a zoo there and they had a lion's crypt, place where they had lions, and they apparently had them in a hole in the ground such that it was difficult for them to get out. Apparently there was a doorway that was at the bottom level of the crypt. And if you displaced the king, you became fodder for the lions, and pretty soon you became lion scat. They arranged for Daniel to be convicted. Daniel was, Darius was disappointed. They tried to figure out how not to put Daniel in that place. You can read that about it in Daniel chapter 5 and Daniel chapter 6. Darius eventually puts him into the lion's den and we get one of our favorite Old Testament stories. God closed the mouth of the lions. Darius goes the next morning, taps on the door, the one that he had, 
the stone that he had rolled in front of the door. Where else do we hear about a stone rolled in front of a door? Rolls it back a crack. He's not interested in the lions getting to him. And says, Daniel, are you there? Now, it's an interesting question. Why would he go there with any expectation at all that Daniel might be there? Because he's already convinced that Daniel's God is real. He's going to be really disappointed if he doesn't find Daniel there. Daniel is there, just fine, petting the lion next to him, I'm sure. Darius brings him out and said, Guys, you guys that figured this scheme out to get rid of Daniel, I'm not going to march you in through the low-level door. I'm going to heave you over the rail along with your wives and children. And we know the story that they, the lions attacked them before they hardly hit the ground. That occurred almost immediately after Darius comes in here. Now, one of the interesting things about the empire of the Medes and Persians, they often had what you call co-regencies, where you have two kings. The Babylonians did it some, too. Now, oftentimes when you had one king that was aging and the next in in line would come up, you'd have a period of overlap while one was fading away and one was taking over. Uh, You had a small period of that when David named Solomon. Um, But in this particular case, we had a co-regency. Cyrus, which is recognized as the first king of the entire combined Mede and Persian and Babylonian Empire, was recognized as being in charge from that date that we recognize right here at 539, but we know we had Daniel very carefully saying we had Darius in charge over the Chaldean or the Babylonian portion of that kingdom. Now sometime very shortly after this, it appears Daniel gets moved to Susa. And that's important to make note of because the latter part of the book of Daniel is written from Susa. And Susa becomes an important place. The book of Esther is written from Susa. We have Ezra starting out his story in Susa. We have Nehemiah starting out in Susa. So apparently the Jews that were advisors to the king and those who were top craftspeople and whatnot got moved from Babylon to Susa. And it appears to have happened sometime early in this period of time. The other thing that happens is we get right in here from Cyrus in Susa an instruction to go back and rebuild a temple. Now, one of the other things that the Medes and the Persians brought to it is they were under the opinion that every geographic area on the earth had its own unique God. And if that area on the earth did not honor its God, that area would not do well. The Medes and Persians were a rather practical group of people. Their idea was is they wanted to prosper. That means the crops needed to be raised, they needed to have bumper crops, they needed to do all this. To do that, under their understanding, the God of that area must be honored. Well, the Babylonians had wiped out the god in Judea and largely deported everybody that was anybody. The only people they left behind were those who didn't know how to do anything. The land over 70 years had largely gone to brambles. Here it would be sagebrush. Weeds. It was ugly. And because the trees had been cut down, And it's very interesting. When we come to modern Israel, you go back to 1949 and you establish modern Israel, what is the first thing that the Jews did when they returned to the land? They started planting trees. 
You go to Israel today, is it a green area? And the answer is yes. Why? The trees become an important part of the ecology and they help retain water. And because the soil is porous, when you retain water, it goes into the soil, it becomes a source, and you have springs all over. You read about springs being all over. You read about the springs drying up when there's drought, when you read in the New Testament or the Old Testament prophets and the stories, particularly around Ahab and that kind of thing. So it's important to understand that trees are important. Nebuchadnezzar denuded the land. So the Persians say, hey, we want this to be productive land again. Number one, we need to get the God of the land honored. Number two, we need to start restoring the land. And the people who know how to do it are the Jews. So let's send them back to rebuild the temple and start reclaiming the land. So it's an interesting perspective to take on it. We can get a clue on this thing here. One thing that Daniel started doing is almost immediately after here, Daniel is reading, and he happens to be reading Jeremiah's writings. And he reads in Jeremiah the following, Therefore, and this is uh, Jeremiah, let me give you the reference on it. Jeremiah 25, and starting at verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send, the, send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all those nations about them, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of millstones. And the sound of millstones is the sound you get when you're making flour to make bread. And the light of the lamp, that's the oil. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be 70 years, and then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. And Jeremiah goes on and says more about that. Daniel is reading Jeremiah, and he says, I've been here 70 years. What's God going to do? And lo and behold, we get the edict by Cyrus to tell Zerubbabel, who is a shirt-tail relative of David, and also happens to have lineage in the priestly line, and says, hey you, gather up a bunch of people and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild a temple and start restoring the land. So we do. And thus ends a 70-year period for the people. Now it turns out in 736, uh, the temple foundation is built. It takes about 40 years for the temple to be built in its entirety, and the temple reconstruction is completed here. Read the book of Ezra. It talks about what's going on. In the middle of that effort, uh, people get tired. Remember what I said, what happened to all of the good building stone? Now the temple was larger than this room that we're in right now, not hugely, but our sanctuary area would be the inside area of the temple, roughly about just a little wider and just a little longer would be the inside area of the temple. But the way it was to be constructed is a layer of 
limestone, big blocks, quarried, brought in, set, and then after, I forget, three or four layers of rock, you'd put a timber, large timbers from Lebanon would be brought in because there's still forests in Lebanon, and they would be put as a layer to tie all this together, and then you put more stone on top of it and do it. It's the way the Solomonic Temple was built. It's the way this temple built. Um, it takes a lot of work to build those stones, and you had a small crew to do it. So we have the fact that we have, oops, we have Haggai and Zechariah helping encourage the people to get on with the temple reconstruction. 518, we have temple reconstruction and another 70-year period ends. We still haven't gotten to Nehemiah. Just so you understand a little about the Persian Empire, you'll read that it went basically from Greece to India. It was an amazing empire. Went down to Egypt. At some points, it refers to the fact it went all the way down to Ethiopia. Their influence certainly went that far. This was a huge, huge, huge empire. You can see why they had regional rulers, regional governors. And when we read in the book of Esther that they sent edicts all over their empire, written in the language of the people that were going to hear it, and they put them on fast horses, specially bred, to carry them over the, the country. What kind of horses were those? Arabians. We value that same strain of horses today. For what reason? One, their beauty. But number two, their ability to travel long distances at high speed. This empire bred the horses specifically to be able to do that. Huge empire. You compare that to what we have in the Middle East today. Oh, by the way, when you hear folks, particularly those that we are worried about in that region, saying they want to reestablish the caliphate, this is what they're talking about. This is another look at that same area, a little more condensed without all the eastern portion on it with the names on it. Susa is here. It's important to understand what's going on. Susa is now where the rest of the biblical story gets originated. The return starts in Susa, goes on, and I think if we look here, um, oh, this is a unique timeline. Let me back up to this. Um, we have the returns in here. I've got another map that will show those returns. Now what I want to take a moment and look at here on this particular timeline, which is horizontal rather than vertical. God intended to preserve His people. He intended to preserve them intact. He intended to bring them back. One of the amazing things today is after 2,000 years, God brought the Jewish people back again to Israel. Even after they'd been scattered all the way up into Russia, scattered all the way over into the New World, He brought His people back again. Did He bring them all back? No, as always is the case, He brought a remnant back, a certain portion, those who were willing to be obedient to Him. But interestingly enough, while the people were in Babylon and in, under the Persian Empire rule, God provided a way for them to be preserved. And that's one of the fascinating stories of this period of the history. It's one we need to take attention to and say, our God, if He can do this for the Jewish people, what does He do to preserve us? Because what you'll notice here, as you look at some of these folks across here, is we have Daniel sitting in here, and for some reason I didn't get the name on it. This is Daniel's timeline. We know Daniel is here to at least 
some distance into King Cyrus's reign. We don't know how long Daniel lived. There are those who are of the opinion that Daniel was killed. Remember in the book of Esther, the guy who hated Jews, Haman? Some of the extra-biblical literature say Haman killed Daniel. Uh, I don't know, he would have had to have been about 140 or 150 years old for that to take place, and that seemed to be a long time for people to live then. But Daniel lived a very long life. He lived at least 90 years and could have been into 100. So sometime in this area where it's dotted in here, Daniel passes away. But then we have Zerubbabel. Where does Zerubbabel get his understanding of Scripture and things and give him the burning fire to go back to Jerusalem? Think there's any chance that Daniel whispered in his ear? I'm convinced that Zerubbabel sat at Daniel's knee and learned about the Jewish people, learned their history, learned about the God that Daniel worshipped, and he equipped Zerubbabel to come back and start building the temple. Where in the world would Zerubbabel get the information on how to build the temple? Well, there's pretty good instructions in the Torah. That's the five books of Moses. Very specific instructions about how to build the temple. And then there was the writings of David, who gave more information, and the writings of Solomon, which gave more information indeed. All of that is stuff that would have gone to Babylon with the temple records. And with Daniel and the people around him being the ones to preserve that information. And you'll notice that when the king sent Zerubbabel back, he sent him back with much of what Nebuchadnezzar had hauled off to Babylon. Then we have Esther. Now, we all talk about Esther and what she did, but who was the guiding light in Esther's life? Guy, her uncle, Mordecai? By the way, her Jewish name was Hadessa, just so you know. Here's Mordecai. He may have met Daniel, but he certainly was in Daniel's line because he knew who the Jews were, he knew what God was, and he knew that God would provide redemption. Because at one point he tells Esther, you are queen, why? Because God puts you here to overcome the edict that was issued. Because the edict that Haman had convinced Xerxes, the king, to put out, said on March of the next year, it's interesting that it was many months away, you guys wipe out the Jews. Well, the Medes and Persians had a rule that once it was a law, it would never be changed, never be rescinded, never be changed. So the only way around it was for another edict to be put out that says, the Jews, you can fight back. And they did. And the fact is their fight back was so successful that they ended up with a holiday and celebrated in the middle part of March. Pura, Pura, something like that. But God provided a way to preserve the Jewish people here. Then we have Ezra who is a priest and a leader, and he's been given an edict to go back and clean up what's going on in Jerusalem and take a whole other group of people back and get the temple worship going and get the people worshiping their God properly. Because again, the idea was is the people in Jew the Jewish people needed to be in the Jewish land worshiping their God the right way. Now that's an interesting way to preserve somebody that you put over there. It'd be sort of like picking up somebody from England and saying, you get sent to America and America is going to help you preserve your respect for the king and for the British parliamentary system 
and send you back more committed to it than you were when you left. Most of the people from England get over here and they say, yeah, that system's okay, but yours is better. But in this case, they were being told, no, you go back and do it your way. That's an important part of the story. And then, of course, then we get to Nehemiah. Now, who is Nehemiah? And we're just about out of time. Nehemiah tells us in chapter 1 of Nehemiah that he was a cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah was apparently a member of a rather extended family. And at least one of his brothers, if not more, was sent to where? Jerusalem. And his brother comes back and he tells Nehemiah, uh, there's Trevor in River City. Things aren't going well. There needs to be something done about it. And Nehemiah commits to do something about it. Now next week we will start reading in verse 3 and we'll read Nehemiah's prayer of preparation before he goes to the king. And we want to read that and study it. But who else was Nehemiah? We don't know how wealthy Nehemiah was. But at one point in his book, and I think it's in chapter 10, uh, it gives us a list of how many people he fed. Nehemiah went to Jerusalem after he got an edict from the king to go to Israel. It says he was there 12 years. Nehemiah says, I never once asked for the governor's allocation of tax money to pay for my household. And then he lists how many people he's feeding, clothing, and bedding. And it's a lengthy list. So I don't know what kind of resources Nehemiah had, but he had sufficient to feed an army, a small army. In addition to that, it said Nehemiah, the king, trusted him so much that he gave him free reign to tap the government coffers to support the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and particularly the rebuilding of the walls. Now that's a high level of trust. Now again, we're looking at this series of people that God has provided to take care of the people of Israel that have the complete trust of the king most of the time ruling as second or third in command. That is an amazing way to preserve your people. Phenomenal way to preserve your people. Now just a couple of quick asides. There are six cities in the Middle East that claim to have Daniel's tomb. This one happens to be in Susa. And you note know, the amazing tile work. This is probably the most likely place for Daniel's tomb, is in Susa. Um, we talk a little more about this as we go forward the second time. We look at Nehemiah's story and hear what is done. The amazing thing that Nehemiah accomplishes is he takes the walls that have been flattened to sand and gets them reconstructed in literally a few months. Portions of it literally in weeks. It's amazing what he gets accomplished in that regard. Captivities, the first captivity took the northern tribes up into Assyria this way. Captivity to Babylon tended to come this way. Notice that the restoration from Susa started here, came down this way back through Babylon, picked up pieces and parts, and brought them back to Jerusalem. It's just another look at this to remind ourselves. This is the post-exilic portion of the country. Really a pretty small area. Mostly just the area around Jerusalem right here. And this is the city of Jerusalem. We'll talk a little more about it. The portion that 
was rebuilt during Nehemiah's period is this yellow and these portions right here. And we'll talk at some more length about that in the future. So this is just another look at the history. Uh, for those of you that didn't get one of the slide handouts, I will have more of them next week so you can look at that in great detail. And we'll close out here. What we need to remember from our story of getting to the first few verses in Nehemiah is that God had a plan for preserving His people. He executed that plan partially by putting unique people, uniquely qualified, next to the foreign king so that the Jews would be taken care of. Have we heard that story before? Who went to Egypt 40 years before the rest of the family went to Egypt? Joseph. Joseph was what? Second to the king when the Jews showed up. It's a pattern that God has repeatedly of taking care of his people by sending somebody in advance to be next to the king to preserve the Jews. The question is for you and I, who did he send before us? to take care of us. Who is that person that he put before us? We have the apostles. Before that, we have Jesus to preserve us, to bring us to the Lord. The thing that Daniel told Belteshazzar is, you know, God took your great-great-great-grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, and turned him out in the pasture as a cow until he learned that God decided who was going to be king and who was not. Until God decided how things were going to be taken care of. And you didn't learn your great-great-grandfather's lesson. But you know what? The one who had been put there to preserve the Jews, Daniel, survived. Interestingly enough, when we get into, Neb into Nehemiah, we're going to hear about Tobiah. Hated, Neb hated Nehemiah's guts, put it mildly. Did everything he could to do him in. And yet, Nehemiah was preserved by God. God has a plan. He takes care of it. He executes it. Now the question in your bulletin is, is where was Nehemiah's attention? It was on God and what God intended to do with his people. Where is our attention? Heavenly Father, thank you very much for our time together this morning. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will use it to stimulate us to love you more and to honor you with everything we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.